3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the ways of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. My daughter Sajin's bedroom um, has become something of a storage room um, since she has gone away to college. And depending on uh, the time of year, you might find uh, a box of Christmas tree lights there. Uh, You might find an old coat that needs to go to CARM. Uh, You might find a carton of computer cables that only my son knows how to plug back in. They kind of gradually appear there over the year. And uh, when Sajin gets ready to return, we clean out the room and prepare the space for her so she can feel at home and present there. In a similar way, Advent is a time of cleaning out our lives and preparing our hearts to encounter Christ in a fresh way. Over the course of the year, that inner room of our heart has a tendency to get cluttered with stuff. Maybe some boxes that have some negative emotions in them. Maybe uh, some old clothes from the old man that we keep putting back on. Uh, Maybe a a tangled uh, network of relationships that have gotten us off track. One of the things that Advent is for is to do a little house cleaning. To remove anything that's cluttered our heart that might keep the Lord from fully filling uh, the space of our heart. Now, how do we do that? That's one of the things we're trying to do all during Advent. Well, John the Baptist is read every Advent uh, to answer that question. John comes to prepare the people 
particularly the people of God, to receive Jesus, to receive the Messiah. And I want to look at what he says and does and and see if we can find some help as we prepare to experience Christ in a fresh way this Advent ourselves. I want to read it again, parts of it again, just because we're going to reflect on it tonight. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, Jesus has been introduced in chapters 1 and 2 as the genuine son of David, the great king of kings. And so what Matthew is doing now is, is saying such a great king deserves a great herald, and the great herald is John the Baptist. The, the wilderness for a Jew, and Matthew was written primarily for Jewish readers, wilderness was a rich symbol for a Jewish reader. It, it represented uh, a, a space where you encountered God. Uh, now, sometimes that was a time of, of renewal, uh, like when God gave the Ten Commandments. Other times that was a time of judgment as when the children of Israel disobeyed and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But to a Jewish reader, hearing this, the idea of going out into the wilderness to hear a prophet was an invitation to meet God in a fresh way. And that really is one way you might think about the wilderness. You notice this, this doesn't take place in Jerusalem. That would have been more normal. All the religious activity of the day took place at the temple. This is offline. This is away from the activity, and God has set it up in such a way that His people can meet Him in a fresh way. And one of the things I encourage you to think about this Advent is, is whether or not you will go out to the wilderness for a time of renewal and fresh encounter with Christ. Because you don't have to. There, there could have been people, I'm sure there were, that stayed in Jerusalem and just kept going about the daily business. Uh, they ignored, they were too busy to go out and see the prophet, perhaps. And our cultural narrative of consumer chaos uh, is so enveloping this month. Being a student and taking finals, uh, whatever it is you're working on with your children or, or with your business, it's so easy in December to not step away into the wilderness and set aside time for a fresh encounter. But that's what Advent invites us to do. Here's what John says in the wilderness. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the word repent means uh, to turn or to move around or even to get out of the way. Uh, The idea is is that there is this, this new reign of Christ breaking in. And that there's this way of relating to God that will be deeper and fuller than ever before. And if you want to join in with it, you need to rearrange your life in some way that, that you can get in step with it. You can't just keep going as you've been going. And then he reads a prophecy from Isaiah about the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And, and, and Matthew, or John, applies it here to, to getting ready for Jesus. And originally it was a, a prophecy about preparing for uh, the Messianic king to come into uh, Jerusalem. And what they would do is they'd send out the ground crews, and they would make sure that these rough country desert roads would be straight so that the king and his entourage could come through. And that's what John is doing. That's what repentance does. It's, it's straightening out the crooked parts of your life so that the king has access straight into your heart. 
Now, what does that look like for you this Christmas, this Advent? What, what, are, the, what are the parts of your lives that need straightening so that the Lord has a straight shot into your heart? What does it look like for you to repent? The church fathers thought a lot about this, and they, they wrote a lot about purity of the heart. They were obsessed with this idea of the pure heart. And, and so they, they wrote a lot of books and preached a lot of sermons on what are the sorts of sins that clutter up a pure heart. And for some reason, the, the ancients loved lists. And they, they thought many people couldn't read in those days, and they thought if they put things in lists, people could remember them. And one of the lists that came up very early on was of the seven sins. And every Advent, the, the people of God would take those out and look again to see if anything had cluttered up the chamber of their heart. And, and let me remind you of, of the list real quickly. The first sin, pride, thinking too highly of yourself, being uh, self-focused, self-obsessed. The second, envy, comparing yourself to others, being jealous of others, uh, not being able to rejoice when others succeed, uh, a spirit of comparison or ranking. The third sin on their list was anger. Frustration over not getting my way. The fourth sin was sloth, spiritual laziness, spiritual complacency. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, the, uh, the writer, put it like this. She said, sloth is that whole poisoning of the will, which, beginning with indifference and an attitude of I couldn't care less, extends to the deliberate refusal of joy and culminates in morbid introspection and despair. Fifth sin on their list, greed. That selfish reach to grab and keep for yourself. Uh, Addiction to possessions and a certain standard of living. Running around obsessively uh, trying to gain more. There never being enough. You never can stop looking at your cell phone. You never can stop trying to do that extra deal. You never can stop studying. You don't give because you're greedy. Gluttony. A disorder of the appetites. Hunger and thirst are good, of course, but gluttony is is turning these legitimate needs into God's, giving food and drink too much power in our lives. Uh, When when it goes beyond uh, enjoying a a beer to I have to have a beer, when it goes uh, beyond enjoying a cup of coffee to I can't get up today unless I have a cup of coffee, that would be gluttony. The, The last on the list is lust. The use of another human being to satisfy one's sexual desire, uh, allowing the burning desire of sexual passion to overcome us so that we make bad decisions and hurt ourselves and others. So let me just read the names of those again. And I want, I want us to just pick one that you're struggling with the most. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. Which one of those seven is cluttering your inner chamber tonight? Keeping Jesus from reigning fully in your heart. 
Now, the church fathers thought these were gateway sins. In other words, they saw these as the seven core that led to all the other ones. So they're a good place to start the inventory. One other thing before we move on, if you remember from your, your literature days, Dante uh, wrote this great book, The Inferno, and part of The Inferno was working your way uh, through the, the sinners who'd committed these seven sins. And you could tell how the medieval church viewed these sins by which one was, was lower and which one was higher, which one was closer to hell. And interesting, in their ranking, the worst sin is pride, the second worst is greed, and the least worse is uh, lust and um, uh, gluttony. Not that any sin is better than another, but for the, for the ancients, disordered desire was easier to solve than a disordered heart, pride. And I just thought that was interesting when I, when I read a devotion about that this week, because in, the, in our church culture, the only things we really tend to talk about are sexual, uh, and maybe a little bit of, of greed, when it's time to, to raise the budget. Um, pride is the root of all of them. Now, verse 4, John shows up in this strange outfit, camel's hair, leather built around his waist, his food with locusts and wild honey. He is dressed like an Old Testament prophet would be dressed. There's even a, a text in Second Kings that said Elijah uh, dressed in a hairy coat like this. He is a man between the times. He is bridging the old covenant with the new covenant. And he comes in and, and he says, the, the, Matthew says, all Judea and Jerusalem, all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, what does this teach us about how to prepare to receive Jesus in a fresh way this Advent? Well, what he's doing, the first thing he does is he preaches this Message of repentance, this hard word, he calls the people of God to turn, to move, to, to, to remove the clutter from their heart, but he doesn't stop there, because that's not enough. Then he baptizes them, which is a foreshadowing looking towards the cleansing work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He, he wants them not only to experience the weight of their sin, he wants them to experience the washing and forgiveness of what Christ has come to do. And so the second way that we prepare to receive Christ in a fresh way is to experience Christ's cleansing and forgiveness. The first way is to repent, to take our sins seriously. The second way is to experience Christ's cleansing and forgiveness. 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you feel clean? First Corinthians 6 6. Paul lists all the ways that the Corinthians used to sin, and that's the way some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were washed. Do you feel washed? Revelation 1.5 To him who loves us and has washed us from our sins by his blood. Ephesians 5.26 Jesus died for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. 
Titus 3.5. He saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now it seems to me we can, we can make two mistakes here as we're preparing to experience Christ in a fresh way. We can overlook repentance. We cannot take sin seriously. We, we, can, we can be spiritually slothful. We cannot be awake to the dynamics of our heart. That's one way. But the other way is we can fail to experience the washing of Christ's forgiveness. And I think I bump into more of that than I even bump into the, the first problem. You know, you, in all souls, we like to use this metaphor of the, the house for the Christian life, this idea that there's a first floor that represents your conscious mind, where you go about, it's what you say you believe, and what you do, what you write, what you read. And then there's this basement that represents your unconscious. And down there, there's all this hidden stuff. There's hidden beliefs, there's hidden desires, there's hidden brokenness, there's hidden false strategies, there's hidden distorted images of God, there's hidden wrong expectations about life. And it's all stuff down there in the basement. A lot of times what we believe in the first floor doesn't line up with what's going on in the basement. And one of the boxes in the basement, in many of our basements, has a big title on it, and the title is, Pay It Yourself. Now most Christians, if you've been in church for any years at all, know that's heresy. We know about the cross, we know about Jesus, we love the blood, we sing about the blood, but in our hearts... We think we have to pay for it ourselves. We've not experienced the washing. And if that's where you are, it hinders your capacity to experience Jesus because you're, you're doing something only He can do. There's this belief that somehow I have to work off my own debts before God. That somehow I'm responsible to punish myself for my own sin. That somehow I'm so great a sinner that the cross is not enough. And again, I'd submit to you, this doesn't come out in Bible study. It comes out in your subconscious that seeps into the rest of your life. Here are some ways I think we punish ourselves for our own sins. One of the most common is is, uh, we shame ourselves with negative self-talk. We are just constantly saying things to ourselves that that God wouldn't say, the Spirit wouldn't say, the Scriptures don't say. This is after we've asked for forgiveness a thousand times. But somehow we think that, that, that somehow punishing ourselves by condemning ourselves over and over again will somehow make up the gap that Christ couldn't fulfill. We tell ourselves we're not worthy of others' care and concern Uh, That that somehow it would be wrong for us to share what we're struggling with or what we're thinking about. That that somehow to take up your time to help me, that I'm just not worthy of that. We isolate ourselves from from healthy people uh, because we feel unworthy to be around them. And so we continually gravitate towards unhealthy relationships. We feel somehow at home there. And then are you watching, just like in Dante's Inferno, there's a, there's a descending scenario of, of how this plays out. It starts off with a lot of negative self-talk. Uh, it, it, then it goes even to the abuse of our body. So for some of us, there's, there's cutting. 
For some of us, there's, we abuse our, our bodies in the way we eat or drink. For some of us, we abuse our bodies in, in giving them sexually to people that we don't even like. And then, sometimes we kill ourselves. I read a, a, a very sad uh, editorial recently that noted that suicide rates are increasing and among Christians as well as uh, the rest of the population, which you would think is a very odd thing because there's this one narrative in our culture is, isn't it great how connected we are now? I mean, I can be connected to you 24-7. I can, I can tell you whatever I'm thinking or feeling on Facebook. You can text me, tweet me. We're so connected. Isn't this great egalitarian phenomenon? Uh, so wonderful that we're all connected now. And yet at the same time, people are becoming more and more isolated and lonely and disconnected. And this essay says that between 1999 and 2010, the suicide rate among Americans between 35 and 64 rose by 28%. More people die by suicide today than by auto accidents. Some people commit suicide because their sense of their own identity is dissolved. Some people do it because they hate themselves. Some feel unable to even participate in the world. The poet Anne Sexton wrote the following before her own suicide. Now listen, life is lovely, but I can't live it. To be alive, yes, alive, but not to be able to live it. Aye, that's the rub. I am like a stone that lives, locked outside of all that's real. I wish or think I wish that I were dying of something, for then I could be brave. But to be not dying and yet, and yet to be behind a wall watching everyone fit in where I can't. To talk behind a gray, foggy wall to live, but to do it all wrong. I'm not a part. I'm not a member. I'm frozen. I think a fair number of followers of Christ could write something like that at some point in their in their life. And I don't want to oversimplify this. I understand that mental illness plays a role and depression plays a role. And, and I don't want to suggest that if you just believe the Bible, everything would be fine and just take this first. However, th- the truth is that we have an enemy who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. He's called the father of lies. He's called the accuser of the brethren. His primary weapon is to get in your head and shame you about everything you've done wrong, even after you've said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it ends with self-destruction. So, beloved, if you think it's normal to scream at yourself all day long, it's not. And if you don't get a hold of it by going to someone you trust and love and talking about it, the road is dark and lonely and doesn't end well. Now, the only way I know to start to unpack this stuff and find healing from it is to do what the enemy hates the most, and that is to bring it into the light. And, and to share with someone you trust, share with some of your people. You know, I haven't told anybody this. I'm not saying, but you say, this is what I'm thinking right now. You say, I got up this morning and thought, I don't want to get out of bed, and it would be okay if night never came. You start to speak what's in your head, and that's one of the ways we can start to diffuse
some of these lies. I I think one of the great barriers to intimacy with Christ is Christian self-contempt. Christian self-hatred, which is a different thing from sorrow over sin, right? There is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. There should be sadness and, and, and grief that you've hurt someone that loves you. But when that lingers and comes back again and again and again, and you, how many times do you need to come to this table to make it right? Once. But if it comes back again and again and again, that's not the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin. That's the enemy trying to destroy you. So that's the second step to preparing our hearts to encounter Christ in a fresh way is is to experience his washing and cleansing. And as someone pointed out to me, and I'll just, just mention this in passing, at the end of the day, when I can't forgive myself, when I just hold on to what I've done, when I, and for me it's hardest when I make the same mistake again and again. I just hate that. Because I know as a Christian I should grow. And when I find myself committing the same pattern again and again and again, it just makes me want to scream and give up. But as a friend pointed out to me, if, if I can't accept the gift of Christ's forgiveness for whatever that is, I'm committing the sin of pride. I'm saying, Christ's cross did a lot, but not enough for this guy. i got to add to it. So for some of us, we need to repent of the sin of pride. I've had to. Sorry, Jesus. i got to help you on this one. got to beat myself up a little longer. You didn't cover it. Well, after this revival starts in the desert, and the the desert of Judea is kind of a badlands wilderness. Uh, It's very remote. It's, I don't know, 10, 15 miles. I can't remember. I've been there, but it's not too far out of Jerusalem, but far enough that it's not a part of Jerusalem. So there's this revival going on in the desert. And this would have been a very strange and odd thing because all religious activities were supposed to take place in the temple. And here's this guy wearing funny clothes out in the desert and everybody's going out and getting religion. So the leaders of the religious establishment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, head out and, and check it out. And you can't, you can't really tell from Matthew how sincere they are, but John sure doesn't think they're very sincere. He calls them a brood of vipers. And a viper is a little snake that looks like a stick and deceives its prey by hiding the snake thing and being a stick until you get closer, then it bites you. And so one of the things that Jesus, uh, or Matthew, or John, or whoever is saying these words, something God is saying here, is, you know, you guys are deceivers. And you're deceived. 
He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he says, don't bank on your pedigree. Don't bank on the fact that you're a child of Abraham. And if I'm not mistaken, every, uh, every uh, Jewish leader at that time would have had something in their house, a paper, that showed which of the tribes they came from. That was how you knew you were part of the family of God. You had the paperwork. And, and John is saying, you're, you're deceived on this, friend. You've, you've misread your, your spiritual health. You're basing it on the wrong things. Look at your fruit. Look at, what, look at, what, look at the, the life that you're living. And for John, he particularly meant, look at your relationship with the one who's coming, Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very delicate thing. It's a very tricky thing. But, but I think we need to, to, to say it. One of the great risks or challenges of the spiritual life is spiritual self-deception. The, the Bible warns about it all the time. It is, it is easy for me and for you to deceive ourselves about our spiritual health. How I feel about how I am loving God and loving you is not the same thing as how I really am loving God and loving you. We have a great capacity for self-deception when it comes to the spiritual life. And, and John's antidote is, we'll look for the fruit. Look to see if, if there's things changing in your life. Look to see if you are living out of Christ. Look to see if the fruits of repentance, a deeper love, a deeper compassion, a greater peace, a greater freedom, are those things even incrementally appearing in your life? Aha, here's the question. But if I'm capable of self-deception, how will I know I'm not deceiving myself when I look for the fruit? <laughs> because the Pharisees would have said, I passed the fruit test. I've got the sheep. Whew, what do we do? Here's where the body comes in. Because you can fool yourself, but you can't fool the people who love you and know you. And this is where community is so, so important, and confession and community is so, so important, is when we get close enough to one another that our people start giving feedback about who we really are in relationship. And when we get into conversations where we say things like, can I just tell you how I'm experiencing you right now in this conversation? Or as a friend said to me recently, you know, we kind of gotten stuck here. What have I contributed to the problems in our relationship? See, when, when the people who love you and know you begin to give you loving and honest feedback about how you live and love, that's when you really know what your fruit is. The greatest antidote to spiritual self-deception are your people. You can fool your heart, but you can't fool your people. Now, it's a fairly easy thing to clean my daughter's room up. It's a lot harder to clean 
my heart up. But they're both important. I want my daughter to come back home on Christmas break and fully enter into the space and peace of that room just as we want Jesus Christ to fully enter into our hearts this Advent and be at home in the space there. The old prophet John the Baptist reminds us how to do that. We repent. We experience God's cleansing and forgiveness. And we check our fruit. Let's pray.